once again, welcome to Vaughn Forest Church. Like I said earlier, my name is Chad, one of the pastors on staff here at Vaughn Forest, and I'm so excited that you are here with us today as we are kicking off this brand new teaching series called Easter People. Now, if you know if you if you know this or not, but Easter this year is at the end of this month on March 31st, and uh, and so we are so excited for this series uh, over the next few weeks leading up to Easter Sunday to kind of take a look at the perspective of the Easter story through some of the different folks that lived that story out in Scripture. And uh, this is a series that I am really excited about. I think it's something that's going to be encouraging for you and something that's going to be incredibly helpful for you uh, as we enter into and as we. We go through this Easter season leading up, leading up to Easter Sunday. But I do want to point out, in case you didn't know, I'll say it one more time, that Easter Sunday this year is on Sunday, March 31st. So Easter this year is super early. If you don't already have it on your calendars, make sure that it's on there. And here at Vaughn Forest Church, we are going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ during our normal times of 9.30 and 11 a.m. that morning. And so I hope that you will make plans to join us, uh, bring your friends, bring your family. It's going to be an incredible time. We're going to have some great music. Uh, we're going to have a great message for you. And then all kinds of little surprises. Uh, we'll have our photo booths out in the lobby so you can come and make sure you get those great Easter uh, family photos. Uh, but it's going to be a really, really, really great time. And I hope that as you came in today that you got some of those Easter invites. Uh, they, we've got those in packs of five at the tables as you come in. Or if you didn't get some as you came in, grab some as you leave. Uh, it's got all the information on there and uh, so that you can invite your friends and your family to join you. And, and my prayer is that even now you would begin thinking about who it is that the Lord may be calling you to invite to join you uh, either during this series or on Easter Sunday here at Vaughn Forest Church. Uh, but we are so excited for that, looking forward to it. Uh, but for today, we are kicking off this brand new message series. And before we get into our, se- our, our character study for today, I wanted to take just a little bit of time and unpack some of the background around Easter. If this, this celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important, I think it's important uh, that we as followers of Jesus uh, know more about it. And so uh, I wanted to answer today at the top of the series, at the top of the sermon, take just a few minutes and answer some frequently asked questions that we get about Easter. As a pastor, people come up and they ask questions, and I thought it might be helpful to address some of those frequently asked questions uh, that we get. I think it'll be a little bit helpful. So is everyone cool if we take just a few moments and kind of unpack some of the history of Easter and answer some of these questions? Everybody good with that? Okay. I'm glad that you are. We were going to do that anyway. So before we get into the history of Easter and before we get into some of these questions, uh, we have to lay down a foundational principle about Easter. And that is that the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we call Easter, that celebration of Easter is connected to the Old Testament celebration of Passover. Easter and Passover are connected. They are connected in terms of imagery. They are connected in terms of prophecy. Passover in the Old Testament points to Easter, and Easter in the New Testament fulfills 
Passover. So if you don't know what Passover is, let me real briefly kind of unpack that for you. In the Old Testament, at the time of Moses, uh, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, the Jews, they were in bondage in the nation of Egypt. And Moses had and, and gone to the Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And, Mo, and the Pharaoh had again and again and again refused to let them out of slavery in Egypt. And so God sent plagues. And over and over these plagues, they didn't work until we got to the 10th plague. And the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn son in every household in Egypt. And so God says, I'm going to send this angel of death that is going to go over every household in the land of Egypt, and the firstborn son in every house will be killed. But he tell, God tells Moses, tell the Israelites, my people, to take a pure and spotless lamb and sacrifice that lamb to me, and to take the blood of that lamb and wipe it over the doorpost of your household. And when I see that, I will pass over that household and I will spare the firstborn son that is in there. And so that's what happens. The people go, they sacrifice this pure and the spotless lamb. They wipe the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of their houses and the Lord passes over, hence the name of the celebration, Passover, the houses of the Israelites and the Egyptians, the household of the Egyptians, the firstborn son in every house dies. And at this point, Pharaoh reaches his breaking point, and he sends the Israelites away out of the land of Egypt. And every year since then, the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, the Israelites, celebrated this holiday of Passover. And the imagery of how this points to Easter is that we know as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that Jesus was ultimately that final and perfect sacrifice for our sins. And in the same way that the blood of those lambs was wiped over the doorpost of their household so that the Lord would pass over and not kill that firstborn son, the blood of Christ, when we ask him to be our Savior, is wiped over the doorpost of our hearts. And we can be in right relationship with him. And we can know Jesus. And so Passover and Easter are linked in terms of imagery, in terms of prophecy. Once again, Passover points to Easter, and Easter fulfills Passover. Everybody got that? All right. So our first frequently asked question that I get is, why is it called Easter? Why do we call this celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> why do we call it Easter? Why would this be called that? And it's a great question. And there were some, there's some thought and there's some, there's some Wrong information that sometimes gets put out there. At the turn of the 20th century, uh, in the early 1900s, there was a group of anti-Christian authors that published some books and published some papers and said that this word Easter had a pagan origin, that it related back to this Anglo-Saxon goddess named Astara, and that was where the name of that came from. And there's actually not a lot of evidence for that. What we do have evidence of is how this word came about through different translations of the Bible. And to unpack that, once again, got to give you a little bit of a history lesson, that up until the 1500s, Whenever there was a church service that was being held, and the Catholic Church was pretty much the only church on the scene at the time, the readings from Scripture would be read by the priest in Latin. And most common folks of the day could not speak Latin. Therefore, they could not read the Word of God on their own. It was just the priest and the monks, those who had been educated in that. And around the year 1517, a monk comes along, a guy named Martin Luther, who says that ought not be so. And Luther and some of his buddies jumpstart this movement known as the Reformation. 
And in the Reformation, one of the key principles was that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that we can know him personally. What's one of the best ways to get to know God personally but to read his word? The problem is, is once you take away the power of the church to tell people what the word of God says, whether it actually said that or not, people got really, really frustrated with Martin Luther. So they exiled him, and he had to go into hiding. And in 1521, Luther spent some of his time in hiding, translating the word of God into the common speech of his fellow countrymen, which was German. And so as Luther is working on this translation, he comes to this time in the New Testament of this uh, celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Luther, to describe this season, uses the German word Oster, O-S-T-E-R. And these first three letters, O-S-T, what that means in German is East. And uh, I've got a buddy that goes to our church. Uh, he is from Germany. I called him this week to make sure this was all correct. And he said, yep, thumbs up. So Luther refers to this as Oster, O-S-T-E-R. And he's referring to this imagery of the sun rising in the East. That the resurrection of Jesus is like the sun rising in the east coming up out of the night. Another point, he will refer to this celebration as Oster Fest. At another point, he refers to Jesus as the Oster Lamb. And he's calling back that imagery from the Passover Lamb. So he says austere, and that is what he refers to this season, this celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A few years later in England, there's a guy named William Tyndall who is now translating the Bible into English. And rather than start all on his own, he builds on Luther's work and he Anglicanizes this word austere to ester. So in Tyndall's translation, a few years later, he changes austere to ester. And then a couple of decades down the road, King James of England commissions the King James Version of the Bible in 1611. And what do these translators do? They do what every good British person does. They add in an extra vowel, and we go from Oster to Esther to Easter. And that's how we get this word known as Easter. But all of it refers back to this imagery of a rising sun, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the King James version of the Bible would be used pretty much uh, primarily by everyone for the next 300 to 350 years until we started getting some other translations. And so this word Easter entered into kind of our common lexicon, and that is how we got this. But the word Easter refers back and grants this imagery of the sun rising of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some folks still prefer to call this celebration Resurrection Day. That's perfectly fine. There's no problem with that whatsoever. As long as we are referring to it as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is what is important. That is why, and that is where we got this word Easter from. The second question that I get a lot is this. Why does the date of Easter move around? We said it earlier. The Easter is super early this year. Sometimes it's early in March. Sometimes it takes place later in April. Why does the date of Easter move around. Now, to, to answer this question, once again, we have to go back to our foundational principle that the celebration of Passover and the celebration of Easter, when Jesus rose from the dead, these two things are linked. And Passover took place at the same time every single year according to the Jewish calendar. The problem is, is that the Jewish calendar was different than our calendar, what we have today, the Gregorian calendar. The Jewish calendar followed the lunar cycle. And the Jewish calendar had 12 months with about 28 or 29 days apiece. And so there was about 10 extra days that we would have in our calendar that they did not. And just like two clocks 
where have you ever had one clock that was like a certain time and the other one was slightly off and they just got further and further and further apart in terms of what they said? What happened was is that these two dates of these celebrations were getting further and further apart. Now, the early Christians, the ones who became believers right after uh, Jesus was crucified and ascended into heaven in that first century, many of them were Jews who had converted over to Christianity, realizing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so it was important for them to keep the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus and the celebration of Passover kind of in the same time. They still held Passover in high regard. And then subsequently, the early church fathers also kind of wanted to keep those two dates close to each other. So rather than let those go further and further off, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, they dictated that Easter would take place, and this is complicated and I apologize, hang with me, that Easter would take place on the first Sunday after the first full moon of the spring equinox. I'll say that again. Easter would take place on the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the spring equinox. And by doing so, they were able to keep these celebrations kind of at a similar time of year. And so that is why Easter, the date of that changes, because they were trying to not let it get too far away from that Passover celebration, knowing that these two festivals, these two celebrations are connected. The third question that I get a lot is this. What is Lent and should I participate in it? What is Lent and should I participate in it? Very simply, Lent is a time, 40 days of fasting that takes place leading up to Easter. It starts on Ash Wednesday, 40 days out. And again, the date of it moves around as the date of Easter moves around. And it's a time where people give up something, uh, typically things like meat or some other kind of food. Some folks also would say, I'm going to stay off of social media or maybe give up TV or movies. And during that time... They're trying to focus their hearts and their minds on the sacrifice of Jesus during Easter. And the point of all this is that you give up something that you enjoy doing or enjoy eating in order to focus in on the Lord. Now, the question is, should I participate in it? Now, this is mainly a Catholic observance, but there are a lot of Protestants, non-Catholics and non-Orthodox, who, who observe Lent as well. And the answer to the question, should I participate in it, is totally up to you. It is totally up to you. While scripture tells us that we should have times of prayer and fasting, it says when you pray and fast, not if you pray and fast. We are to pray and fast and observe those times. Scripture never gives like a clear indication of how long that is supposed to be. The reason that these uh, uh, many celebrate Lent for 40 days is it's a uh, kind of a reflection of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert without food or water. And so if you would like to participate in that, it's totally totally up to you. And you have the freedom to either do so or to not do so. And Paul actually writes about this idea of this freedom in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. He says, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. But if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So the answer to the question is, should I participate in that? It's completely up to you. I would say as long as you are doing so, not because of peer pressure or because it's a cultural thing, but because you would like to focus your heart and your mind on the Lord, that that is perfectly fine. If you choose not to participate, that is perfectly fine as well. The last question that I get, believe it or not, I get this one a lot, 
Is it okay to dye Easter eggs and eat Easter candy? Is it okay to dye Easter eggs and eat Easter candy? For some of us, it's less okay than others, right? But I get this question a lot, believe it or not. And there's no question that there were some early pagan rituals that involved uh, eggs as a sign of fertility, that involved blood in some of their rituals. Uh, there's no question that things like bunnies and some of these other animals were seen as kind of like a sign of spring uh, during that spring equinox. No question about that. It's true. Now, what is also true is that over time, the meanings of things can change. And I'll give you a great example. Today is Sunday. We are here today on Sunday. That day no longer means the day of the week where people come to worship the sun, S-U-N, but rather for us, those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, we know that this is the day where we come together, we worship together, we celebrate the Lord, and we fellowship with one another. One of my favorite things that the Lord does is he takes what the enemy means for evil and he turns it for good. He takes what is wrong and he redeems it to make it right. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That there have been things that you have gone through in your life, troubles and trials and tribulations that the Lord takes and he uses those for his glory. He redeems them. So regarding the dying of Easter eggs, we don't have a clear commandment on this in scripture. Okay, There is no thou shalt not die the Easter eggs or thou shalt participate of the chocolate bunny for it is good. All right, We don't see that anywhere in scripture. So what do we do when there's something that's maybe a little bit more confusing? Well, we look at the entire body of scripture. We consult spiritually mature men and women who also are consulting scripture. We pray and that gives us a pretty good idea of what, what the Bible, the guidance of the Bible would give us on that. So here's what I would say regarding dying Easter eggs. If you are gathering together with your family and your friends and you are dipping eggs in blood to honor a pagan god, maybe don't do that. Scripture is going to frown on that. That's not a good thing. However, if you are gathering together with family and friends around Easter and your heart and your desire is to celebrate and thank God for the resurrection of Jesus, for his sacrifice for us on the cross, and in doing so, you gather together and you eat some food and you dye some eggs and you have some candy, I would say that that's the kind of fellowship that makes the Lord smile. So it's all about your motivation. It's all about what is going on in your heart. Now, we're not talking about sin here. The Bible clearly calls some things sin. The Bible does not call this sin. So this would be one of those things where don't offend your conscience. Don't offend your conscience. If you don't feel convicted over this, again, the Bible doesn't label it as sin, then by all means. However, if you would say, hey, I don't feel really comfortable doing that, then by all means don't do that, and neither side should look down on the other one. But if you're anything like me, and you believe that Cadbury cream eggs are a good and perfect gift from the Lord, then I would encourage you to partake. So next question, our last question, why does all this matter? Why are we taking this time to kind of talk about some of these frequently asked questions? Well, it's because there's a lot of folks out there who have questions about this stuff. And I think as followers of Jesus, it's important for us to know the answers to these kinds of things. Because the Easter story is such an important one. It is so linchpin to everything that we believe as followers of Jesus. And in this series, as we look at these different perspectives of the folks who lived out the Easter story, what I want you to understand is that while the events of Easter took place 2,000 years ago, the story of Easter continues today in us. 
These people that we read about in Scripture, it's not just their story. It is our story as well. We are the Easter people. And that is our big idea for this series, that the Easter story continues today, and we all have a part to play in that story. The Easter story continues today, and we all have a part to play in that story. And so often when we read Scripture about what happened back in these times 2,000 years ago, I think sometimes these characters can seem a little bit larger than life. They can seem a little bit unreal. It's kind of like I remember watching shows when I was a kid that were filmed in the 50s or 60s, and it was all in like black and white television. Anybody here remember black and white TV? No one is raising their hand. Okay, that's fine. Oh, we got a couple of folks. Y'all are brave. Well done. But like in my mind as a kid watching these shows in black and white, I almost had this picture that like the world at that time was also in black and white. And that's not the way that it is. It was vibrant and it was real. And the same is true as we read the Easter story for these characters that we're going to read about in this series. It was real for them. It was vibrant. And save for Jesus, not one of them knew how the story was going to end. And so I hope that as we take a look at these different characters in the Easter story, that it's something that's going to be encouraging and inspiring to you. So to give you kind of a roadmap of where we're going over the next uh, several weeks, week one today, we're going to talk briefly about John the Beloved. Week two, uh, next week, Mary of Bethany, the worshiper. Week three, Nicodemus, the seeker. Week four, Peter, the failure. And then finally, week five on Easter Sunday, we will celebrate Jesus, the Savior. Uh, But just for the next few minutes that we are here together today, and I promise to get you guys out on time, uh, we're going to take a brief look at John the Beloved. And just to give you a little bit of background on John, John was a disciple of Jesus, and he was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, John would write several books of the Bible on the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John. It's the fourth one, so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote several general letters or general epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, Church history and tradition tells us that John died around the year 100 A.D. at the age of 93. He was the only disciple to not be martyred for his faith in a gruesome way, but do not let that fool you. He went through many trials and tribulations for being a follower of Jesus, and at the end of his life, he would be exiled on the island of Patmos, and that's where he would write the book of Revelation that's all about end times prophecy. But before being called to be a disciple, John and his brother James were fishermen, and they fished and they worked with their father Zebedee, and that is the first instance that we see of John in the Gospels, and so we're going to pick it up there today in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, to read about Jesus calling John and his brother James to be his disciples, two of them. Uh, Verse 21 says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, and he is Jesus in this, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, our boy for today. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So if you have your notes page, go ahead and pull that out now, because i got just a couple things I want you to jot down today, some reminders as we look at the life of John, the beloved disciple. The first is this, that you never know when God will call you to something extraordinary, so be prepared. You never know when God is going to call you to something extraordinary, so be prepared. See, this was just an ordinary day for these guys. They were out fishing in the boat with their dad. They had no idea that the Lord was about to call them to something that would literally be game-changing for the entire world. 
They had no idea the implications of what was about to happen. And for us in our lives today, it may or may not be that the Lord is going to call you to something with that level of implication. But the truth is that when the Lord calls, we need to be prepared to answer. And what's so interesting about these uh, these guys that Jesus would call to be his disciples is that there was nothing extraordinary about them. They were ordinary dudes. As a matter of fact, they had already been looked over by most everybody else. In the first century AD, the way that the Jewish school system worked was everyone entered in at about the age of five or six, and as you went on, the best and the brightest were allowed to continue, and the other ones were, were sent away to go learn the trade from their family. So these men, the fact that they were fishermen means that they had already already been looked over. They had already been discarded. And it's very interesting because I read a great quote today talking about the disciples of Jesus, and it says that there was little evidence for their dependability, much less their greatness. And yet the Lord would call them, and they were prepared to answer the call of God to accomplish their purpose. Our job is to be ready and to respond when the Lord calls. And that's our second point for today, that when God calls, respond immediately with everything. When God calls, respond immediately with everything. There was no hesitation in John and James's response. It says they dropped their nets and they went and they followed Jesus. And like we said, these guys and the rest of the disciples of Jesus, they weren't anyone that folks would look at and think this is the best and the brightest and they are going to change the world. And you may feel that exact same way. Sitting here today or watching online, you may say, Chad, I don't really feel like I've got what it takes. I feel insignificant. I feel like I've been looked over. I don't really even know how to begin to get in the game. I don't feel ready, and I don't feel qualified. Let me encourage you with this today. The only qualification that the Lord is looking for out of you is that you say yes. The only qualification that the Lord is looking for out of you is that you say yes and that you respond in obedience when he places that call on your life. And the purpose and the calling for each of us may look different. Maybe God's calling you to be a light shining in the place where you work or where, maybe where you go to school to shine the light of Jesus. Maybe God's calling you to be a missionary. Maybe God's calling you to be the best parent that you can be. Maybe God's calling you just to, as you go throughout your life, be a smiling face that encourages those around you. Maybe God's calling you to start some sort of new work. But understand that our job is not to necessarily have to decide whether we are ready or not. Our job is to simply say yes when the Lord calls. Our job is to respond to him. And John put down his nets, and he and his brother, they followed Jesus, and they were willing to give up anything and everything for the Lord's call, and they were willing to say yes. So I want to fast forward just a little bit as we get a little bit further into the ministry of Jesus, and we see John and his brother James, they come and they ask Jesus a question, picking it up here in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's a loaded question, right? They go to Jesus and they say, we want you to do whatever we're going to ask. The good news is, he's Jesus. He's God. He knows what they're going to ask. But Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? 
We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, the rest of the disciples, heard about this, they became indignant. They weren't very happy about this. With James and John, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this story is kind of equal parts hilarious and like very serious. Again, they come to Jesus, and they're like, hey, grant whatever it is that we ask. And Jesus says, hey, what you're asking for, that's not for me to grant. But he asked them this question. Do you think you can drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? And what he's referring to there is he is referring to his trial and his persecution and his tribulation and his death. That is what he's referring to. He was referring to the hardships and the cost that it's going to cost Jesus to come to redeem this rebel race known as humanity. He says, can you drink from that cup? Very ignorantly, they say, well, we think that we can. But it's a great reminder for us of this, our third point for today, that there is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to following Jesus. And James and John in this story, they want to skip straight past the pain and get to the glory. And it's a great reminder for us that while the Easter story is a story and it is the reality that Jesus Christ came and he died for us and rose again victorious over death, that the path to get to that victory was filled with heartache and was filled with sorrow. And the process of being a disciple of Jesus, of becoming more like him, it comes at a cost. And whether we actually ever face physical tribulation, or maybe it's something where folks uh, put us outside their social groups, or maybe they ostracize us. At the very least, Jesus sets the example of this, that we are to be servants of others. He says here that that he came to serve, not to be served, but to serve. There is a cost to following Jesus, and while that is trial and tribulation, it also means that we serve others and serve those around us. And God wants to transform your life to make you more like him. God wants to transform your life to make you more like him. And we see this happen with John, the beloved disciple. You see, in our minds, when we think of John, so many of us, we think of this wizened old guy on the island of Patmos who is writing all of these letters, talking about love, talking about end times prophecy. But the truth is is that John did not start out that way. When John began, he was brash. He and his brother were known as the sons of thunder. What is thunder? It is loud. It is wild. It is uncontrollable. He was headstrong. And we see a great example of this in Luke 9, uh, beginning in verse 51, where they are traveling to Jerusalem and they're going through Samaria. This is what it says. It says, at the time, as the time approached for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up into heaven, so right on the eve of Easter, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. Those in Jerusalem and those in Samaria did not get along. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? 
But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So literally, these people come up, and they don't welcome them. And John looks at Jesus. He's like, hey, Jesus, do you want us, us, to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? And it says that Jesus rebukes them. So literally, right before the events of Easter, John is seen as this brash and headstrong young man who is just so quick to bring down retribution and fire on those that he would consider to be his enemies. So what changes? What is it that changes John? And I think that the big change in John took place at the Last Supper. And if you don't know the Last Supper, it's the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. He and the disciples, they're up in this upper room and they're celebrating the Passover meal together. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes and he washes the feet of his disciples. And in the culture of the day, what that was saying is that you are more me, that I am your servant, that I am lower than you. And John sees his teacher, his rabbi that he's been with for the last three years, wash the feet of his disciples. And then picking it up in John's own gospel account in John 13, we then see this happen. And I think that this is a real linchpin moment. It says, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and this is John, and this is the first time that John is going to be referred to this as the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, John, and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. And it's this moment that I think really transforms John. Because John, like I said, he's been traveling with Jesus for three years. He has seen Jesus perform miracles. He has seen him walk on water and do the impossible, calm the storms. He has literally seen Jesus in his glorified state on the Mount of Transfiguration. John probably had one of the clearest pictures of who Jesus as God in human flesh actually was. And what does he see Jesus do? He sees him wash the feet of his disciples, including the feet of the man who is going to betray him. He sees an incredible act of servant love from Jesus. And I think in that moment, that example of love, of sacrificial love, is what transformed John from a man who was willing to call down fire on his enemies to someone who was always first to call up love no matter what the situation was, even to those who opposed him. And this is our last point for today, which is this, that we are the most like Christ when we love others, especially those who do not love us. We are the most like Christ when we love others, especially those who do not love us. The next day, as Jesus would hang on the cross, John would be the only disciple to show up. Scripture tells us that the rest of the disciples scattered. But John, having been so impacted Seeing this sacrificial love, he shows up there at the foot of the cross. And this reminder of sacrificial love of Jesus up there on the cross, paying the price for our sins, this would impact John for the rest of his life. And we see this in his writings in 1 John chapter 4. 
John writes this much later on. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and has sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And as we read in John 13, John would come to be known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think that if John were standing in this room with us today, he would look at us and he would say, if you are a follower of Jesus, understand that that title doesn't just apply to me, it applies to us all. We are all the ones whom Jesus loved and we are called to love like Jesus and follow his example by loving others, even those who oppose us. And I can't help but think about John a few days later on Easter Sunday, standing there at the empty tomb, seeing the place where Jesus lay that he was no longer there. And like we said earlier, these folks in this story, they didn't necessarily know how it was all going to play out. But as John stood there, I think he knew this simple truth, that the one who loved him the most was alive. And the same is true for us today. That the one who loves us most, he is alive. And we are called to follow him and to set that example of love. The band's going to come out and lead us in a time of response. And as we respond this morning, I think there's a couple of different options in our response that the Lord may be calling us to. The first is, when I talk about this relationship with Jesus, you may look at me and say, Chad, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never made that decision to follow Jesus. And if that's you today, and you would like to make that decision, then praise God. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I pray, you're going to have an opportunity to make that decision. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so in just a moment, if you would like to make that decision to follow Jesus for the first time, I'll say a prayer and you can repeat that after me. Believe that in your heart. Or maybe you would like some more information on that. On your connection card, there's a next step on the back. It says, I would like more information on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you would like to have a pastor reach out to you this week, check that box, drop it off in one of the bins, and we'll be sure to follow up with you on that. Maybe this morning you would say, Chad, I know that I'm a follower of Jesus, but man, I've really lost perspective on what it means to love others. And maybe during this time of response, you need to pray to the Lord to give you the strength and the courage and to refocus your heart and your mind on what it means to love those around you, to remember the intense love that Jesus has for us. Maybe a third response you would have this morning is you would say, man, I know that the Lord is putting someone on my heart right now to invite to join, maybe for the series or, or on Easter Sunday morning, to come and hear about this incredible sacrificial love that our Father God has for us, enough that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, who would rise again victorious over death. Maybe even now God's putting that name on your heart. I would encourage you, make sure you grab some of those invites on your way out today. Utilize those over this next month. Invite folks to come with you because we believe that God's going to do something incredible. No matter what it is that you feel the Lord is calling you today, my prayer is that you would have the courage and the boldness to respond. So let's pray. So Father, we do thank you for how you love us. God, we thank you for the great sacrifice that you made for us. 
God, we thank you that because of that, we can be in right relationship with you. And so, Father, I just pray that we can remember that. And God, there may be those who are in this room today or maybe watching online they have never made that decision to follow you, but they want to do that today. God, I just pray that they would just repeat this prayer. Just say, dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins and be Lord of my life. I want to be in right relationship with you and spend eternity with you forever. And so, Father, for those who have prayed that prayer, I pray that you would give them the boldness to reach out so they can begin that process of discipleship. And God, for the rest of us, Lord, whatever it may be that you're calling us to, whether it's to refocus our hearts on you, to remember your great love, God, whether it's to reach out to those around us, God, we know you've called us to all of these things. God, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to do that. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your love for us. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We invite you to stand now as the band leads us in a time of response.